everyone and welcome. Today's discussion is about the continuum of the thinking, planning, and actions that small business owners must take to create and monetize value in the complex, unique federal marketplace. It's not good enough to hope that the planets will align and your company will become valuable one day. There must be purpose, intent, and the successful execution of a well-developed plan. To help me sort through these issues, I reached out to Sharon Heaton, the founder and CEO of SB Liftoff. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure having you. We only briefly introduced you. Please tell our audience a little more about yourself and SB Liftoff. Certainly. SB Liftoff is an M&A advisory firm that serves companies with 15 plus million in revenue. While we work on both the sell side and the buy side, most of our work is representing the seller. At least 50% of our work is in the GovCon market, where we often work with companies with designations, such as service-disabled veteran-owned small business or just small business. I am, um, please don't hate me for this, a recovering attorney, uh, (laughs) and I've been working in the M&A field since the uh, last century. I have been delighted to be working in the privately held market where the owners are frequently people who sat at their kitchen table, came up with an idea, executed on that idea, paid their taxes, hired other people, those people paid their taxes, and they turn around after 5 or 10 or 15 years and find themselves with successful, profitable companies and dozens or even more employees. Those are the folks who make the economy go, and those are the folks that we are motivated to give our full attention and support to. I love it, and I share your passion for these types of companies, Sharon. What you do dovetails very nicely with what we do here at Scale to Market, which focuses on federal business development planning and practices that increase a company's market value. Let's first define our topic of discussion today more a little more clearly. Many founders of small businesses put in 60-hour work weeks for many years because they hope to one day cash out. But sometimes that's all it is, hope. Today, we're going to talk about how to be more disciplined in creating market value early on and the actual process of finding a buyer and selling your business. We're going to start with the end in mind. What do buyers find attractive in targeted small businesses in the GovCon market, Sharon? There are a lot of factors of what buyers are looking for. And it's important to understand that buyers are not a monolithic group. There's a variety of different kinds of buyers. But here are the things that we find to be the most valuable when determining whether or not a seller is going to have a successful exit. The first is whether they've got prime contracts versus subcontracts. What do the margins look like? Is everything in the LPDA, or are they doing some firm fixed price contracts where they can um, manage their margins a little bit more? A key issue is how much backlog do you have? For a buyer to understand where their revenue is coming from for the next year or two or three is incredibly important, and that backlog matters a lot. And I'm being very precise here. I'm talking about backlog, not pipeline. If the company has designations, Is there room to grow under the NICS code before the company sizes out? Basically, a buyer is going to want a company with the idea of growing it. If you're working under a 16.5 NICS code and you already have your five-year running average at 14.5, that's 
that does not give a lot of room for the buyer. And interestingly, the more that you grow the company, the less valuable that company becomes. What kind of services are you doing um, or products are you selling? If it's a services, are they commodity services or are they specialized in some way? Does the company have facility clearances? Are there cleared employees? Has the company been profitable over a period of years, or is that something that's a new development? Here's a key area that a lot of business owners don't focus on. The strength of the management team outside the owners. I'll often turn to an owner and say, if you were to go out into the parking lot and get struck by lightning today, what happens to your business tomorrow? And for the business owner who freaks out and goes white and says, my gosh, my company closes down, then you've got a lot of work to do in order to sell that company. And then um, things like, do you have established project management processes? Do you have strong relationships with your customers or clients? Buyers are often concerned about customer or contract concentration. That's something different in the GovCon market than in commercial, and we could talk about that in greater detail. How soon are your recompetes coming up? Do you have one contract that represents more than 30 or 40% of your revenue that's coming up for recompete in the next year or two? That would affect value as well. And finally, very relevant to what you do, Shirley, is a really strong business development process. We find that most GovCon companies have very weak BD efforts. And when I ask them to tell me about the strengths and weaknesses of their company, business development is very frequently the number one item on their list. Uh, And I would agree with that. That certainly uh, lines up with my experience. Let's delve into a few of these factors to understand them better. You mentioned strong relationships with customers. Are you talking about just relationships with federal agencies, or does that include prime contractors also? I'm really talking about the government agencies. One of the issues is that subcontracts are not as valuable as prime contracts. So if you're primarily focusing on getting subcontracts to large primes, that company is going to have a lot less value than if you're serving the customer directly. In terms of serving the customer directly, that relationship with the government is extremely important. The holy grail is being able to talk to the government people about what are the opportunities that they are concerned about. What are their problems that they're looking to solve? And can you, as a government contractor, provide solutions? The holy grail is being able to shape those opportunities before they're released so that it's well set up for you to go forward with that agency. But Sharon, are there some circumstances when subcontracts are valuable, like being a tier one sub on a substantially sized multi-year full and open contract? Well, this is a very important distinction. There is a distinction between using your company to generate revenue and profits, and then using your company to generate profit and revenue and then to also have the engine itself become more valuable. Subcontracts are a terrific way of gaining past performance, gaining relationships, and then allowing you to go forward into the prime market. But the problem is, even if you're a tier one sub, prime contractors will cut subs for a variety of different reasons. They may develop the skill sets to do them themselves. They may 
find a subcontractor that is lower cost. As a result, when you're selling your company, the purchaser and the financing source for that purchaser will give a lower valuation for your subcontracts than they will for your prime contracts. So you should be thinking about subcontracts as a means to an end. There are means to generate revenue. There are means to generate profit. There are means to generate past performance but they do not add a huge amount to the wealth creation of the value of your company. And that makes a lot of sense. Let's discuss customer and contract concentration. Is it better to spread out among a large number of agencies or to concentrate on a few? There's really no simple answer to that question. It depends upon the kind of work you do and what agencies you're working with. For instance, If you've got concentration, but it's in the intelligence community, most people are going to be pretty pleased with that. If you have client concentration and it is with a tertiary agency whose funding is insecure, well, that's a very different situation. You should certainly be concerned about contract concentration, even more so than client concentration. So I had one client that was getting approximately... 70% of their revenue from the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. Well, somebody said, a potential buyer said, well, you know, that's a lot of client concentration. And I said, yes, but DLA is buying for a whole range of different entities, and they're a very big organization. What the buyer appropriately focused on was that there was one BPA with the DLA that was representing such a huge percentage of the revenue. So the fact that it was one agency was not that concerning. The fact that it was one contract was very much of a concern. In a similar circumstance, I had one company that was uh, doing very well. 88% of its revenue was coming from prime contracts. Unfortunately, 88% of its revenue was coming from one contract, which meant that if they lost that contract, they were left with only 12% of their revenue. That's a concern. But it really does vary, so there's no simple answer. So what you're saying is that you don't want your company to be dependent upon just one or two contracts because they can easily go away. That's correct. I mean, even if you get it for a contract term and four option years, at the end of that five-year period of time, that company's got a very big cliff ahead of it. And hopefully, they've done such a wonderful job that the government will sign up for a new five-year term. But that doesn't always happen, and that is a risk that a buyer is going to take into account. And risks to buyers mean lower prices to sellers. So does it matter which agencies a small business is working in? To some extent, it's better to work in well-funded agencies that are not undergoing some type of political controversy. We're looking for a really secure funding source. For instance, Work in the EPA is more attractive in a Democratic administration than a Republican administration. It's always good to be working with anybody in the defense or the intelligence communities. Yeah, I would agree with that. Those budgets are rarely cut. And I would add health IT to the list. So that means agencies in HHS. In addition, some of these agencies are notoriously difficult to penetrate So my observation is that buyers are always looking to get a foothold into those agencies. I completely agree. But I'd also go a little bit broader. 
Um, healthcare IT is very much a hot sector, but so is cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is something that would be relevant in every agency. So whereas healthcare IT tends to be either DOD, VA, or NIH, et cetera, there's a lot of excitement, exciting work going on right now. Cybersecurity literally is a concern for every agency. Another area that's very hot right now is anything in digital transformation, which is really moving to the cloud. And that's a major focus of a lot of government agencies at this time. So finding services that every agency needs is probably a really good option if that's available. However, if you had to focus on one area, healthcare IT would be pretty desirable. I try to work with founders and CEOs of small contracting firms at least three to five years before they desire to exit to address these exact issues. Which agencies they are in matters and the value proposition they bring is crucial. And to obtain work in those hard-to-penetrate agencies requires focus, discipline, and clear, executable, data-driven strategies. Shooting from the hip rarely works. You mentioned that buyers also are looking for strong business development processes in their target companies. I understand the value to the seller, but why are discipline processes important to the buyer? Well, the buyer wants to know if the business development process is a strength or weakness in the selling company. If it's a strength, the value of that selling company is going to be higher and the buyer is more likely to be enthusiastic. If it's weaker, then the buyer is going to determine whether or not they have a business development process that is effective, and will insert that into the selling company. But it also means that the selling company will not capture that value. So it's really a straight monetary difference for the seller. Boy, don't I know that. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Poor processes or undisciplined processes uh, really are inexcusable these days. There are best practices and systems that are suitable for small, high-potential companies to help them take a more disciplined approach to business development and to generate consistent high-margin revenues. So what do business owners... Uh, sellers least understand about a buyer's motives? It's very interesting. It's an excellent question. And buyers can be motivated by a wide range of items. Uh, Most common is that buyers want to avoid the first five years of building a GovCon company. Those miserable years when you have no past performance and you are working as a sub to somebody else to build that past performance. We are more and more being approached by buyers saying, I know this business. I want to build on a foundation that somebody else has already built as opposed to having to build that foundation myself. So that's a really core issue that happens in GovCon companies that is less likely in commercial companies. Buyers are very much looking for good contract vehicles, IDIQs and BPAs. Uh, However, if you have that IDIQ and BPA, and don't have any task orders, all you really have is the hunting license. Buyers pay a lot less for the hunting license than they would if you had the hunting license with uh, task orders under it. Those task orders are critical to determining the value of your company. So those contract vehicles are very important, but you've got to focus on the task orders under them. Buyers are often looking for access to new customers. 
One way to break into a new agency is simply to buy a company that's already working there. Every buyer that I know of in GovCon is looking for strong backlog. They want to see, you know, do you have two or three years of revenue in your backlog? And that will make a big difference on the valuation of the company. And then finally, specific and desirable skill sets. If your company is doing cybersecurity or healthcare IT, that's going to be far more desirable than if your company is doing janitorial services. You might have exactly the same revenue. You might even have exactly the same profits, but one will be given a better valuation than the other. And Sharon, let's talk about contract vehicles here for just a second. You mentioned about a GWAC or IDIQ and them having limited value unless there are issued task orders under those. How would you distinguish the value of a full and open prime position on a GWAC versus a small business prime position on a GWAC? It is very important. Full and open is clearly the place that GovCon companies need to get to. And they need to make a decision about are they going to take the jump to the full and open market. The issue is one of direct data. If you are a company that is getting most of your revenue from contracts with designations, your multiple will be somewhere between a three and a five. If you're an extraordinary company, you might go above a five. If you're a full and open company working in exactly the same field, it's much more likely that your multiples will be between a four and a seven or an eight, depending upon what you're doing. So for the same, let's say, $3 million of EBITDA or $2 million of EBITDA, uh, if you have $2 million of EBITDA and you get a four multiple, well, that's $8 million. Very nice. But if you have $2 million of EBITDA and you're able to get a six or a seven multiple, now we're talking about 12 or $14 million, and it's for exactly the same work, except it's full and open versus a designation. And that makes a lot of sense. I try to encourage my clients, especially those that are larger small businesses that do have a value proposition, they have something very unique, to go after full and open contracts. Sometimes they think they're not allowed to compete in the full and open market because they're small, but they can still compete. And as you've indicated, it adds to their market value. It's a tremendous difference. And the work that you're doing on that is incredibly important. It's very weird to think about it. But if you are a company with designations, then you've got to be living with the sort of Damocles hanging over your head of what is your five-year revenue average to see when you're going to get outside that NICS code. If you are uh, working under, let's say, a $30 million NICS code revenue cap, and you're currently at around 15 or $16 million on an average basis, there's plenty of room for a buyer to come in and grow that company, and you're going to get very good value. If, on the other hand, your five-year average is closer to 25, 26, 27, then bizarrely enough, uh, that company could be worth less than a smaller company could be. We refer to that as the valley of death. As you get closer to the NICS code cap, your company, bizarrely enough, could go down in value because what you're doing is leaving it to the buyer to make that jump to full and open. If, in fact, you as the owner have already begun to break into the full and open market 
and you can show a buyer that the full and open market is available to your company and its services, you have just increased the value of your company tremendously. And that makes a lot of sense that you look at the value of your company from the buyer's perspective, not necessarily from your perspective as the seller. Completely true. One of the things that SB Liftoff does for our clients is take them out of the weeds of working in their company and taking a step back to look at their company. You know, when you've been working on your company for years, your company becomes your child. And, you know, you look at your company and you say, well, yes, it does have three eyeballs, but look at how much better they can see. <laughs> and somebody else may say, well, that's pretty strange. I'm not sure that I like that. Yes. So it's pretty important that a seller take a step back and look at it the way a buyer's going to. And that's what a really good M&A advisor will do. An M&A advisor will help guide that seller through the process of distinguishing themselves personally from the company and look at that company on an objective basis so that by the time that a buyer gets involved, there are no questions being asked, no data being sought that has not already been reviewed and the story of the company presented in a cogent way. That's, that's excellent. Sharon, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago regarding buyer's motives, and you mentioned about specific and desirable skill sets. Do you find that buyers are looking for companies that can add depth to their existing skill sets or to add skills where they are weak? Both. It could very well be different buyers. There are some buyers who are extremely interested in going deeper into the area that they're already working in. So having those skill sets in your firm could be extremely helpful. However, I find in most circumstances, buyers are interested in uh, purchasing something that is adjacent to something that they're already working on. Maybe it's the skill sets that they already have in-house, but it's with a new agency. Maybe it's with the same agency, but it's slightly different skill sets. So I'm working with one company at this point that does computer programming, taking some commercial off-the-shelf software, and customizing that for the government. That is an extremely desirable activity, and it's one that a lot of different government agencies want. Um, So she's got very diverse clients. That's terrific. One of the things that we're using in the sale of this company is talking about additional technologies that might be useful and that would further expand that company. So in this case, it happens to be artificial intelligence. Now, the selling company doesn't have artificial intelligence expertise, but we're talking to buyers that do. And the buyers are looking at this selling company and saying, this is a terrific platform that's already doing really good quality work. We can put our expertise over it and make it even better. So it really does vary on the buyer. But having something that is either a really good skill set or, or good connections in a different agency are valuable depending upon who the buyer is. So in that case, would you say this is the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? Absolutely. It is very much a situation where it is a win-win for both the buyer and the seller. The idea is that the resulting company actually can do more than either company could in of itself. Having said that, I want to take just a moment to talk a little bit about the difference between a strategic buyer versus a financial buyer. 
financial buyers are not solely PE, private equity. There's a lot of different financial buyers out there. If you're selling to a strategic, as we've been talking about so far, one of the things that sellers get really nervous about is that they are providing a lot of information in the due diligence process to the company that's the potential buyer. If it's a strategic party, that strategic party is often going to be a competitor of the seller. So I very often have sellers come to me and say, I only want to sell to a strategic, but I'm not willing to provide any information to a competitor. Well, you've just eliminated selling to a strategic. <laughs> right. If that's something that's of concern to you, then we should be focusing on a financial buyer. And there's a whole market out there of folks called searchers, and they are very active in the GovCon market and can be very desirable buyers. So um, elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, what is the perspective of these searchers? Searchers um, run the gamut of a lot of different things, but to artificially stereotype them, they are often people who have worked for 10 years, 15 years, and said, I've been making money for other people for my entire career. I want to do that for myself. I want to take on the responsibilities of owning the company, managing the staff, taking the risks, and if, in fact, I'm successful, getting the rewards for doing so. So those searchers are really all over the place. There are um, programs at a variety of different schools like Stanford and Harvard and Tufts, et cetera, where alumni go back and get training on how to be searchers. And then there are a variety of different groups out there that are providing financing to these uh, kind of people. These searchers are looking at your business as a, can I see myself running that business? They bring the financing to be able to close the deal, but they don't bring any of the competitive concerns that you would have with a strategic. So they're not always the right solution, and there can be risks with them, and that's, again, where an M&A advisor can really be important in the guidance process. But they are absolutely a process that should be open. So when people say financial buyers and they hear private equity, private equity is one of those uh, options, but it's not by any means the only one. So let's go back to the seller's perspective. What are the keys to grabbing the attention of multiple buyers and getting top dollar? Excellent question. I believe that your company is a story. It's not simply an entity that takes in revenues, and throws off profits. It is, why did you form this company? How did it get to where it is today? Uh, what do you see for the future? And being able to tell that story to a buyer so that they can see themselves sitting in the pilot's chair saying, yes, I see the future too. I want to work on that. I think an excellent presentation about the strengths and challenges of the company Sellers need to be honest and transparent about what their company is, a coherent and cogent story about the company, its history, where it is today, and what that future can hold. Most of our sellers start with the premise of, I want to sell my company for the most amount of money, and I certainly understand that and, and agree. But upon further conversation, it becomes clear that most of our sellers are very concerned about the employees who work at the company the quality of services that they provide to the government, and their ongoing legacy. 
once you have issues other than simply the money, which, by the way, shows a healthy concern about the world around you, you have a bit of a more complex but more likely to get to a win-win scenario for the buyer and the seller. And Sharon, I've heard you say that some sellers often do not accept the highest dollar offer. And I'm not surprised with that. You know, their businesses or their babies and their employees are literally and figuratively family. So how do you navigate these issues to ensure a successful transition and integration of the two companies afterwards? Excellent questions. It is very rare in our experience, for the seller to choose the offer that's the highest value. It happens occasionally, and that's wonderful because the buyer has taken into account a lot of different factors. But we find that sellers are equally concerned about making sure that their employees are going to be treated well and their customers are going to do extremely good work. In terms of the successful transaction, I view this, and maybe because I'm a woman, as kind of a dating process. When you're beginning the process, you are dating lots of different people. When you sign a letter of intent, you've just put on an engagement ring. And that engagement ring carries you through the closing at which time you're married. You need to be looking very closely at the party that you're dating, engaged to, and getting ready to marry to make sure that they share the same cultural values that you do. That is by far the biggest factor in determining whether or not the ultimate integration is going to be successful. And speaking of that integration, do you find that most buyers want the founders of the company they acquire to hang around for a while post-transaction? Virtually always. At least some part of it. I had one company recently where the owner was in his late 70s and they were the buyers were fine with him retiring immediately, but he had a fully staffed management team that was going to stay. In most circumstances, the buyer wants the seller to stay for some period of time. It could be a matter of six weeks, three months, a year, two years. That's absolutely something that gets negotiated during the process and something that we at SB Liftoff work very closely with the sellers before we go to market to find out what they want to do. We've had sellers that essentially wanted to drop the keys off on the desk and walk out the door. And we had others that basically said, I wanted to sell for the money, but I continue to enjoy what I'm doing and want to keep going. So that goes, that makes a difference on what kind of buyer we're looking for. But no matter how much due diligence a buyer does, the seller will always know more about the company upon the closing of that transaction. And the buyer wants the seller uh, to be available to the to the buyer for some period of time just to figure out where's the paperwork on the payroll system, where's the light switches, how does this <laughs> thing work? Yeah. You can do all the due diligence you want, but it's very different than sitting in that chair in day one. Absolutely. I've been through that myself. Sharon, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Sharon Heaton, founder and CEO of SB Liftoff, about the process of preparing your company for sale and telling your story. When we come back, we'll be discussing the process of finding the right buyer for your business. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, 
plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Sharon Heaton, founder and CEO of SB Liftoff, as they pull back the covers on the M&A process and examine the issues, uncertainties, and decision-making from both the buyer and the seller's perspective. There's about 15 minutes remaining in the presentation. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about both buyer and seller motivations and telling the seller's story. Sharon, now walk us through the process of finding the right buyer. Certainly. The M&A process has three phases to it. The first phase, and I think in many ways the most important, is preparation. This is when the M&A advisor working with the selling company puts together all the data and looks for all of the inconsistencies and questions. We're basically doing due diligence on that seller before they go to market. I have one company I'm working with right now that has really good books and records. And when I said, you know, we're ready to go to market, we're going to, you know, do our due diligence, they responded with, well, there's no need for that. We know everything. I said, okay, give me the information anyway. So we took their information and we listed out their 10 largest customers based upon the data they gave us. They looked at that and they said, well, that's not right. And they said, sir, I did not make that up. This is what you gave me. And we've then worked it out to where it is right. It is so much better for us to find those kinds of issues when we're working alone with the seller than if the buyer is already at the table. Because what that indicates to the buyer is that the seller doesn't have the information about their own company. So that preparation work is incredibly important. There's really three different things going on during that preparation phase. One is understanding and developing the story of the company. Two is figuring out who the appropriate buyers might be and coming up with that list. Because if somebody doesn't want to provide information to a competitor, well, we probably shouldn't be talking to strategics. The third is developing the marketing materials, figuring out what is the confidential information memorandum going to be. Some people refer to that as the book. It's really the story of the company. If you were to have a discussion with somebody, what are the high points, challenges, strengths, and weaknesses of that company? So that's phase one, and all of that is internally focused. Phase two is when you're actually going out and looking for a buyer. Uh, so that's the first time that anybody even knows that you're actually on the market. It starts off by sending out teasers to companies that you think might be uh, interested, companies or individuals. And depending upon the company, sometimes we do a very broad outreach. Sometimes it's more targeted, and that gets focused based upon what the company is, what the seller is looking to achieve. We're finding that large processes during the pandemic are not a good idea. 
that much more focused processes have been far more successful. So that is what I sometimes refer to as the uh, wash, spin, repeat cycle, because we could be talking to 5, 15, 30 different buyers to narrow it down to the two or three that we think are credible and have a realistic opportunity to buy this company. At that point, there are management discussions between the potential buyer and the seller, and a decision is ultimately made for uh, which buyer to move forward with and entering into that letter of intent. So Sharon, what do the sellers find to be the most challenging part of this process? Sellers have been their own boss for years. The idea of somebody, whether it's the M&A advisor or buyers, coming in and grading them and evaluating them is often a bruise to the ego. So sellers need to be able to distinguish between themselves and their success and people asking questions about the company. Buyers have lots of questions, and they're going to focus on both the strengths and the weaknesses of the company. It's important for the seller to stay calm when people are asking questions about the weaknesses, because I have yet to see a company that doesn't have some weaknesses, right. and to not get defensive about it. Yeah. In addition, sellers need to stay calm when things go, quote-unquote, wrong, when a buyer hits a problem or asks a question that the seller wasn't prepared for. Sellers are extraordinarily nervous during an M&A process, but the secret is so are buyers. The seller knows what they're selling. The buyer is extremely nervous that they don't know what they're getting. So because both sides are nervous, it's a more stressful process, and that's just human behavior. That's, that's, that's just the way it's going to be, but everybody needs to be a little bit understanding of the other side. And in my experience, something always goes wrong. Always. <laughs> There's almost never a clear, easy sale. My thought is do not be nervous about something going wrong. I promise you it will. <laughs> yes. Be focused on what you're going to do when something goes wrong, because that's the point of character and leadership, not fearful of something happening. It's the being able to fix it if something does. Yeah, I would agree with that. What do buyers find to be the most challenging part of the process? Truly understanding the target company. What's led to the successes and will that company continue to be successful after the sellers leave? So we're frequently asked, does the seller do the business development stuff all by themselves? Is the seller still using their own personal resume when they're bidding on contracts? Buyers are also working on two transactions at the same time. The first with the seller that we think about. The second is the buyer almost always needs to bring some financing to the table. So the buyer is negotiating a deal with the seller, and then they're negotiating a deal with their financing at the same time. They need both of those to go well to do a transaction. The seller only needs one of those. I tell my sellers that we are as interested in the buyer being successful in their financing as we are in the negotiations between the buyer and the seller itself. We are in a very peculiar time right now with COVID, the promise of vaccines, economic hardship for many, and a new administration. What is your assessment 
of the federal marketplace currently? The federal marketplace is extremely stable. We closed GovCon deals throughout all of 2020. Valuations were unchanged. The federal market is different than the commercial market. I was selling a GovCon company in January of 2019 when we had a historically long shutdown. Commercial companies were completely unaffected, but GovCon companies were. This year, the U.S. economy is kind of a tale of two cities. There are some companies that have not been feeling any impact or even have been strengthened through COVID. And then there's others, sadly enough, that have been devastated. So the effect of COVID on the selling company is very important. For the most part, there's been a very minimal impact of COVID on GovCon companies. And do you see that stability holding for 2021? Yes, I do. Um, There are two aspects to consider when looking at the timing for selling your company. The first is the macroeconomic environment. The macroeconomic environment is low interest rates around for the next several years. And we believe that the government's going to continue to be the largest purchaser of goods and services on the globe. The 2020 recession had a minimal impact on valuations, so it's reasonable to expect the same for 2021. The second aspect that you need to consider is the micro-considerations. Is this the best time for me as an owner and my company to go as a seller to the market? In terms of contracting opportunities, I'm hearing economists say that there will be continued strong demand for products and services related to the pandemic, like PPE and medical personnel, and its economic impact. So more uh, contracts uh, in Treasury and the SBA, for example, and the types of services that these agencies are buying is quite diverse, from loan processing, analytics, and auditing to web development and call centers. What are your prognostications for 2021, Sharon? I think that your assessment is accurate. I'd go a little bit further, which is to say, if you're getting involved in things like loan processing, analytics, and auditing of web development, that's terrific. That's something that's going to continue once the pandemic is over. If you're focusing on things like PPE, a little bit more short term, because we certainly all hope that in 2023, we don't need to be wearing masks all the time. So think about whether or not you're looking to generate short-term revenue because there's an opportunity right now, or whether or not you're looking to get into a field that is clearly growing and will grow over the next several years. So things like data analytics, uh, and as we mentioned before, healthcare IT, cyber, cloud migration. Um, I think in 2021 and 2022, we're going to see a lot more focus on environmental and energy services. And I think that Folks who are involved in data analytics in environmental and energy services will do quite well. I would agree with that, and I would add artificial intelligence and robotics, um, especially in defense. Is that what you're seeing as well? Completely agree, but I would argue artificial intelligence is going to be in every agency. We were talking to somebody recently who was working with AI, and it was in NOAA, I think. So not necessarily the agencies that you would think about. AI is huge. Yep. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing AI being used in Treasury. 
uh, also quite a bit right now. Uh, so I can I can anticipate that that would be over time spread out among uh, all agencies. When you think about what the federal government does, it's very very data driven and using some of these very powerful tools to dig into that data to serve the American people makes a lot of sense. Completely agree. So Sharon, as we wrap up here, do you have any final advice for our audience? Um, it's never too early to think about your end game. Are you running your company to generate profits while you own it, or are you looking to generate profits while you own it and to create value in that entity? They can be done at the same time, but only with diligence and planning. Seriously think about when do you want to sell and what do you want to get out of that transaction. Determine how close to that exit you are and what steps you need to take to get to that end result. I have many people that say to me, I want to sell in three to five years. And I ask why, and they say, well, I'll be worth more. And I'll say, okay, why are you going to be worth more? What are you going to do (laughs) different than what you're doing right now? And they look at me sheepishly and say, nothing. Well, it's unlikely you're going to get to a different result if you're doing exactly the same thing. And finally, I would say, don't try and do it alone. There's a lot of expertise around uh, that can help guide you. You're trying to do your biggest transaction, probably your biggest financial transaction in your life, and you're going to do it once maybe that's not the one you should learn on. I agree 100%. Sharon, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Surely, it's been absolutely my pleasure. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Sharon, she can be reached at Sharon at sbliftoff.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelta Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, Signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's skeletomarket.com, with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.